0: Hello, Typology friends. Ian Cron here with a very exciting show today. We have on my dear friend of 30 years, Michael Cusick. Michael is the founder and director of Restoring the Soul. Uh, He's a therapist who works with leaders and executives providing trauma and informed soul care. Michael, I just read that from this sheet, and I just want you to know I have no idea what it means, but it sounds terribly impressive.
1: Well, it's actually, my friend, because you read it incorrectly. I think you, <laughs> it, I think your dyslexia got the better of you. Oh. Uh, but no, you you are one of the most articulate people that I know, but it is trauma-informed soul care. So we're we're pastoral counselors, but we're also clinical counselors, and we we have this lens of trauma, and we really s- seek to help people kind of transform from the inside out.
0: All right. Well, that was better said than, uh, than what I previously attempted to do. Um, Michael, you're also the host of the Restoring the Soul podcast. You're an author uh, of the really great book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle, and— more importantly, you are an Enneagram 2, a helper, or as Beatrice Chestnut likes to call twos, the befrienders.
1: And I prefer the giver to minimize my shame.
0: <laughs> well, well, we'll get to your shame in, in, uh, in just a minute because shame is, a, is obviously a hallmark feature of twos, threes, and fours. You're the first male Enneagram 2 that we've had on the show since typology began.
1: Wow, that is an honor. Yeah. And ha- have you found it that it's hard to get twos that are males to talk about it?
0: No, I mean, I think um, that's a great question because I think culturally we have expectations that women should be twos and men should be eights, right? Um, right. And, <clears throat> but very often we find women who are eights and men who are twos. And, and some of my dearest friends, I count you one of them, are are healthy, integrated twos.
1: Well, thank you. Um, and, and back to the idea about the shame is that for me, I had uh, Enneagram number envy the first time I, I kind of heard the whole know your number notion. And uh, I thought, really, that's it? I'm, I'm just a helper. And of course, that that belies the very underlying issues in it. And, and I always wanted to be a three or an eight or a four. And as I've pushed into being a two, I've actually come to far deeper acceptance of it. But the idea of that it's easier for me to see myself as a giver than a helper uh, just is, is kind of idiosyncratic to me. And, and that's where I think there's beauty about the flexibility of the words, that different lenses and approaches to the Enneagram allow for different words.
0: Mm. So twos, uh, Michael, feel the compulsive need to meet the needs of others while denying or refusing to acknowledge their own personal needs. Okay. That's the sort of the standard rundown of the underlying motivation of twos. How does that fit your personality? Does that describe you?
1: Well, I am a psychotherapist today. So some people might argue that, that, you know, there's a perfect wiring for it. And I think twos can be really great therapists and are maybe the most natural to move into that field but there's also a lot of things about being a two that work against that where you can care too much for the wrong reasons but yeah it describes me going all the way back to and you know this about me but i went to my first alcoholics anonymous meeting when i was five years old and went to you know many 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 meetings with my dad and other family members that were in recovery and at age nine, uh, my family moved from Ohio to Florida to participate in a drug rehab for my older brother because there was nothing else around at the time. And so I was from the you know very earliest days exposed to a world of helping and programs and organizations of helping. And as a you know five-year-old and nine-year-old, I'm hearing people talk about their deep brokenness and. Because of my own brokenness and abuse and suffering, there was something in me that, that kind of related to that and I learned very early on that I could encourage, smile, even sometimes make laugh, um, care, pay attention, in ways that got people to see me as having you know something really valuable to offer. So I very much relate to it.
0: Mm. Okay, I want to circle back to trauma for a second, because I read something the other day that I thought was fascinating, and quite frankly, because people uh, at workshops uh, and in emails ask me all the time, you know, what is the relationship between personality and trauma? And, and one of the things um, that I read the other day was about how your Enneagram type is what I'm not going to say this as eloquently as, I, as it was written, but essentially it was your personality style, your, your Enneagram number is what emerges uh, at the moment uh, of your first traumatic experience or in response to your first traumatic experience. What do you think of that idea?
1: Well, initially I pushed back on that because I think one of the most beautiful ideas that I've understood about the Enneagram is the idea of essence the true self, this immortal diamond that is the Imago day inside of each of us. And that's something that is untouched and unharmed by trauma. And as a psychotherapist, I rely on that. I I rely on and believe in the fact that there's something deep, deep, deep inside of the soul that is unharmed. And so therefore, I think that the healthy side of the Enneagram number would be uh, that true self, that essence, but then there's that striving, performing, maneuvering, uh, scheming part of us that's unconscious and seemingly like breathing, that that is the trauma response. Uh, so so uh, that the unhealthy side, uh, the, the passion or the sin, becomes the, the coping mechanism for dealing with the wound. Now I'd, I'd like to say a couple other things about trauma because I, I, I think that if you take that essence that core idea of the number. You know, trauma does basically two things if you look at it on a neurological level. It triggers us so that our autonomic nervous system is hyper-aroused or hyper-activated, and that usually looks like fight, flight, and freeze. And the other reaction is that our neurological system is hypo-aroused, that something dials down in us, and that looks like a fainting response. Sometimes folks will have literal fainting in the moment of trauma or being triggered, or sometimes the response will be, you know, more of just a a numbing kind of thing. Having said that, I think every number that people have both an inherent response from the number, but also that people can rev up or dial down, you know, the nine, for example, obviously dials down and there's a, a loss of self. Whereas the three, ramps up and um uh tries to 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 build something and and i i think for sure in the work that i've done that that's driven by neurology and biochemistry and um all of that gets formed in interpersonal relationships but uh, i think the the triads the intelligence centers that each of those have a unique way that people are probably impacted that then leads to uh, either the, the, the physical drivenness or the, in my case for a two, the compulsion to connect with other people or, um, the, the compulsion to have to get information or data to bring clarity, you know, for the, the fives and other things like that. Hmm. That's a, that's a lot longer answer to your question, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, it certainly was, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea, this whole notion of trauma and personality and how one you know, gives rise or doesn't give rise to to the other, and I, it's it's a topic that I just hear about all the time. So, Michael, the 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 passion or the deadly sin of of twos is pride, and uh, except for me, except for you,
1: right? Yeah, because I'm the very best two there is, and therefore I don't struggle with pride.
0: Uh huh. Well, Michael, that's actually not even pride. That's called delusion. <laughs> uh, just, just so you know, it's an entirely different bucket of of uh, uh, of pathology right there. No, but I mean, pride. You know, you think of twos as being selfless people. You don't think about them as prideful people. And I'm, uh, I mean, what does that look like in your life? I mean, I know what envy looks like in my life as a that's the passion of fours. But what's it like for you? Like, can you give me an example of where pride kind of
1: sure reveals we, you know, itself? I, I, we're we're kind of bantering here as friends, but the reason why I said I'm I'm, um, the best two is because of the irony. The first time I heard the two taught in depth, I immediately resonated um, deep below the head knowledge, but in my heart, I immediately resonated with yes, pride. And I have always defined pride not as haughtiness or arrogance, which is how I think many people think of pride, Uh, but pride as self-sufficiency and I don't need others and I I will not come to a place of having to depend on others. So, oh, I've got this personality that's charming and helpful and caring. And so I'll get other people to depend on me or to look toward me so that I'm indispensable or helpful or uh, the one that they look to, to, to meet a need in them. So, How do
0: you engender a sense of indebtedness in other people so that they keep coming back to you for help? Because that's something that twos can do, right? With an unhealthy two, you tend to be manipulative and calculated in your helping and giving. Because what you're looking for is other people to take care of your needs without your having to acknowledge or articulate them. So how is it that you arouse this sense of indebtedness in other people to meet your needs?
1: Well, first of all, I think it's important to say that for most of my life, it's been unconscious. It's been, you know, utterly out of the realm of me knowing that I'm doing this and yet always feeling a compulsion to do more, to be more for people, to give more, to be available. uh, and, And probably only in the last 10 to 15 years through a lot of personal therapy work and, you know, many, many, many hard conversations with people that know me well, has it come to be more conscious. And so uh, here's a a simple example of this. And this is something that I now can choose not to do, but the compulsion is literally there on a daily basis where, and and we've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm driving in the car. Okay. And I'm, let's say I'm driving somewhere and it's 45 minutes away to the airport. And I feel a pang of loneliness inside of me. And and so I'm not the guy who wants to turn on the radio to distract myself. I'm the guy that wants to pick up the phone and reach out and call you and say, hey, Ian, I was thinking of you. And, um, you know, how you doing? You were really on my heart. And uh, the whole time I'm talking to you, being caring to you, there's this pang of loneliness inside that. I'm not really bringing my true heart to you saying, let's connect on that basis. And I'm certainly not saying, you know, dude, I'm I'm going on a ministry trip and I'm gonna be gone for three days and I'm already kind of feeling lonely. And I just wanted to share, that's where I'm at. And you know, will you think of me or reach out to me or pray for me or something like that? Because that's too freaking vulnerable to do, even for someone that I've known for 30 years and we've gone to some pretty deep places because I'm the guy that helps people with that in their life, not in my life. But now that I'm becoming more conscious of that compulsion, I can do any number of things from on my better days. I can just kind of smile like, yep, that's, that's what I do and kind of accept it nonjudgmentally and not act in a way where I'm, I'm reaching out to fill myself or to, to meet that need. Or I can, um, I can uh, hear a berating thought, oh, you know, I can't believe that you're 53 and you're a therapist and you're doing this, but instead to just accept that thought without beating myself up and to go, there it is, I can do breathing, uh, I, can, I can pray, um, I can just be present to myself, which is probably the most important thing. So what fuels my two-ness is not just that other people will meet my needs through my passive-aggressive caring. But through my own disconnection with my own heart, not being aware of my needs and wants. And for me, that's been the journey is coming to be aware of them and owning them and seeing them as valid versus who am I to want anything?
0: Mm, That's so important. And you've said two things that I want to highlight. One is that what the Enneagram has done is teach you to become more conscious of when you are over identifying with those aspects of your personality that aren't healthy, you know, Like and and then to make different choices. I mean, I just think that's so much of uh, what the Enneagram is about. The other one is, and I think this is a great message for twos, and this is, as you said, a large piece of the journey, which is understanding that you have needs, acknowledging them, and actually knowing how to articulate them. I mean, twos are so wired to... Uh, and attuned to the needs and the feelings of other people, but clueless as to what their own are.
1: Yeah, it's really uncanny. And if you had 20 years ago, well, you, you, we lived in the same city back 23, 24 years ago. During that time, if you had said to me, So, what are your wants and needs? I would have looked at you kind of blankly and said, well, you know, theoretically, I know that I have them, but I'm good. And I'd turn to you and I'd say, what are yours? And I do have an ability to read that in other people in probably a, you know, 99th percentile way. But the ability to put words to or even to identify what mine were, that was a tomb where there was a big rock rolled in front of it, and it was sealed off And I wasn't going to go in there. And, you know, for for twos in general, I'm not sure exactly what that's about. For me, it was a lot of trauma and wounding where there was uh, shame and contempt for the wants and needs. Mm. and um, Because it's easier just to be independent than to be connected and therefore at some level dependent uh, with others.
0: Okay, dependent. I want to talk to you about something. We, We were talking about this the other day, you and I, and it's actually an important conversation you know, we're both therapists, and, you know, we, for, I don't know, 30 years back back in the day, probably beginning with John Bradshaw, Melody Beatty, and others, you know, this whole conversation began around codependency uh, and addictions. And then I think that term has become a bit of a moving target, and it's broadened out now. But shame, dependency, codependency, twos on the Enneagram— these all seem to be swimming around in the same water. What do you think?
1: Absolutely, uh, a two is the quintessential codependent, and I've never liked the word codependent for several reasons. Number one, it has become a tired, stale uh, word that that is a moving target, and it's it's like mud that's thrown against a wall that it just it spreads out, and it's it's not clearly. Understood what it is. So let me let me give a bit of history back in the 70s before Bradshaw and and Beatty started uh, using it on a popular level a codependent was the partner of a substance abuser alcohol or drugs and the abuser was dependent on the substance and the partner was dependent on the user. And so that took the form of enabling them or trying to fix them, you know, those opposite ends of the spectrum. And then the the term got popularized to go from that to somebody who has an unhealthy need of the other person, you know. And now, if I kind of gauge it correctly, a codependent, when that word is used, almost in a pejorative way to describe someone, it's that someone's just too needy, you know. And then what that does is it just shames people for their needs. My definition of codependence is that I'm not okay unless you're okay with me.
0: Okay, just say that again.
1: Uh, I'm not okay unless you're okay with me. Give me a picture.
0: Let me let me give me an example. Let me see the picture. I can think of a couple of stories for you, but you see if you got it. I mean, I just. I'm not okay unless you're okay with me. That's the name of a book, by the way. You you need to write that immediately.
1: Tom Harris, uh, Transactional Analysis. He wrote, I'm okay, you're okay.
0: No, but this is a better title. This is a much better title. I'm not okay unless you're okay with me.
1: That's amazing. It's actually, you're right. it's actually but, could I, be the
0: title of a good country song, too, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's funny don't don't get me started on that but back to the transactional analysis book I saw that at a goodwill when I was a kid because my dad collected books and I and I literally thought the name of it was I mock are I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay you're okay I just I was like what's an in <laughs> and... <laughs> true story true story oh uh, no. <laughs> so yeah a, a, a picture of uh, of that and I chuckle because we've we've talked about this story, and it's such a it's not embarrassing or shameful, but there's just such a uh, such a naive innocence in the unhealth. When I was married just a few months, we were we had a whirlwind engagement. Julianne and I have been married uh, 26 years. Last June, and walked through some very very deep waters with my addiction and infidelity and and um, all of that, but in the very first two months of our marriage, we had moved from other states. We're in Colorado. She's putting me through graduate school and uh, I'm in graduate school. And so I had got home a couple hours before her and I lit all these candles in our apartment and uh, and I made a glass of tea for her sitting on this table and arranged some flowers and I cleaned the house and I probably made like a card and balloons. I mean, it's like this over the top. Hold on, Ma- Michael, Michael,
0: hold on! You get, don't forget the post-it notes.
1: Yes, the post-it notes uh, of "I I love you now." No, wait, "I love you now." I love you more than the last post-it note. So, <laughs> the... hold on, where did you put them, Michael? I can't say.
0: I, I think it was on inside of every kitchen cabinet, on every door, on the bathroom mirrors. Did, am I getting this right?
1: Uh, they were in the shape of a heart. <laughs> I'm a Jackson Brown fan that's an obscure reference for 70s and 80s music files so she walks in and I am just waiting for her to you know praise me and to you know be holding up this sign that says best husband ever and she kind of said oh hi and she walked right in and right past all of it and she probably went to the sink and washed her hands and took off her coat and then she's like oh Flowers, that's nice, you know, not acknowledging anything else. And as soon as that happened, this is very interesting about twos. I wasn't disappointed or hurt. Guess what I was?
0: Uh, ashamed, angry, I was resentful. I was angry. Yeah.
1: I was angry. Yeah, after, resentful. After all I've done for you and you're not paying attention to and acknowledging and seeing this. And so that became this huge dynamic in our marriage. With no fault against her, my unexpressed needs and the resentment that came with that, it fueled my addiction like gasoline on fire. Because resentment um, from a husband to a wife basically ultimately ends up saying, um, you know, F you, uh, I'm I'm justified to go get my needs met somewhere else if you're not going to meet my needs. And then the shame of needing projects shame and blame on the other person. And that, that makes it even more okay. And so I was in this delusional, uh, closed hearted place that I am never going to get my needs met. And my spouse hates me and is bad. And none of that was true.
0: Mm. So there's was an example of that kind of cal- unconscious calculated or manipulative giving that, that twos can fall into rather than altruistic giving which is giving without any expectation of return no strings attached giving right um now let's talk about shame for one second michael because i mean this is something you and i've talked about for years i uh my friend Becca Stevens loves to say that love is the most powerful force for change in the universe. And then I, I love to chime in like any good four like Eeyore in the background and say, yes, and shame would be the second.
1: Uh, you know, I agree. I agree. Shame is what makes the world go around, right?
0: <laughs> well, it doesn't, I mean, it's just so dang powerful. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, the, the gravitational suck of it is amazing. And we're in the shame triad twos, threes, and fours. So, That's the go-to emotion for us. You know, five, sixes, and sevens, fear is the go-to emotion. Eight, nine, and ones, anger is the go-to emotion. But for you and I as a two and a four, man, shame is, we're Velcro for it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, whatever the external manifestation is of our struggle, our compulsion, our presenting problem anger, alcohol, buying stuff that you don't need, sex, helping. Uh, shame is always what fuels that compulsion. Uh, because it, because where there's shame, our soul can't rest in a sense of being loved. And where there's shame, uh, as someone said, shame is like a raincoat over the soul that repels the living water of love that would establish us as the beloved. And so the very thing that we're Hungry and thirsty for, which is that kind of deep love for who we are, the shame actually sets us up to never be able to get that.
0: You love podcasts, the stories, the laughs, the unexpected turns. But when this episode ends, the silence starts. Not anymore. Audiobooks.com turns that silence into your next great adventure. With over 450,000 titles, from bestsellers to hidden gems, your love for listening just found its new best friend. And because you already know the joy of audio, we're giving you three free audiobooks to start your journey. Imagine your favorite podcast, now with unlimited episodes. That's audiobooks.com. Keep the story going. Sign up for your free trial at audiobooks.com podcastfree today. Because for podcast lovers like you, the end of an episode is just the beginning. That's audiobooks.com slash podcast F-R-E-E.